Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Chalk up another win for grad students working with the United Auto Workers. Today on the show, Desiree Hoffman's journey, becoming the assistant legislative director at the UAW and Washington Women in Trades. Welcome to the Thursday, March 9th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora and Stitcher. Well, as part of our series on Women's History Month for the month of March, today we are going to do an extended interview with Desiree Hoffman. No stranger to the show. She's on about every other month talking about legislative things happening in Washington pertaining to the UAW, one of our proud sponsors, UAW.org is the website. Well, Desiree has an interesting story. She came out of uh, Blue Collar Central PA, and back in the late 90s, actually right around 1999, she went to Washington, and she's going to talk about those times on the show, some of the challenges she faced as a woman in labor, in the labor movement, and as a woman lobbyist, some of the leaders that kind of helped her along, and some of the leaders of years past that she read up on and kind of is trying to model some advice what about women that want to rise up the ranks in organized labor some advice they'll come from Desiree as well so Desiree Hoffman will be our first guest on the show later in the show this being women in construction week we're going to go to Seattle Washington and joining us on our live line will be Cindy Payne now Cindy she says I make things happen She designs graphics, manages, oversees just about everything, including registration, permits, insurance, budgeting, and more for this organization, Washington Women in Trades. website is wawomenintrades.org. The Washington Women in Trades Association was founded back in 1978 by and for tradeswomen to gather and share information. It's a community-based, nonprofit 501c3 group whose mission is to improve women's economic equity and self-sufficiency through access and success in high-wage, high-skilled careers in the construction, manufacturing, and transportation sector. It's an all-volunteer organization, and it has established itself as a group of industry experts who facilitate connections between the working woman, the wanting-to-be working woman, prospective employers, as well as government agencies. That's pretty much right on their uh, website. So we'll talk to uh, Cindy about the organization, what she actually does. She's kind of like a project manager. So uh, she'll talk about why we need an organization like this, what changes they would like to implement, and how Up until now, they have affected that change and where they'd like to see themselves years down the road. So Cindy Payne, Washington Women in Trades. Again, the website, I think I said uh, ORG, it's wawomenintrades.com, okay, 
womenintrades.com. A lot of times it'll take you there anyway. All right, now for a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. Well, some good news here. Graduate student workers at the University of Southern California have voted to unionize by a margin, and this is pretty significant, 1,599 to 122. Yeah, that's pretty significant. The Grad Student Workers Organizing Committee, which is affiliated with the United Auto Workers, will represent 3,000 teaching assistants, research assistants, and assistant lecturers at the University of Southern California. Meanwhile, staff attorneys at Riseboro Community Partnership have announced their intent to join the Association of Legal Aid Attorneys, which also is affiliated with the UAW. That would be Local 2325, following an election petition with the Labor Board while calling on management to voluntarily recognize their union. Riseboro Leap formed back in 1998, and they're based out of New York, to provide legal advocacy for residents facing eviction. And once again, we're talking about the UAW, very diverse union. You think about them as, you know, the auto workers union, but they've been doing a lot with grad students all over the place. In the meantime, unionized workers at the University of Arizona and Arizona State University are calling for the schools to pay all campus workers $25 an hour by the year 2025. And for working conditions, they see as more fair to contingent faculty. Natalie Reed is a senior lecturer at the University of Arizona and described United Campus Workers of Arizona as a wall-to-wall union representing faculty members as well as students and staff who are employees. Natalie said the petition for higher pay could affect about half the workers at both universities. She said rising inflation, fees, and the cost of living had made it very difficult for folks who are the backbone of these schools to stay afloat and survive. Natalie says, and this is a quote, employees deserve a thriving wage. It's not just keeping us happy. It's a question of, can I live in the town where I work? It is that fundamental. Meanwhile, members of the Communication Workers of America, this is the CWA, proud sponsors of America's workforce, and these are the folks that work at AT&T Mobility in the Southeast. They have reached a tentative agreement on a new contract. The new deal includes job upgrades, wage increases, better working conditions, stronger job security, and much more. The bargaining team was also successful in negotiating better health care and parental leave benefits. And one more here before we break. Workers at Talking Points Memo, TPM, which, by the way, is one of the longest-running political news sites. They have ratified a new contract. Now, these workers are members of the Writers Guild of America East, and they unanimously approved the new agreement that covers three years. The contract contains... Numerous gains for staffers, new minimum salary levels, pay increases every year of the contract, increased severance minimums, more vacation days, expanded professional development, improved health and safety standards, 
commits, commitments to diversity, among other things. In a statement, the union member said, we are thrilled to have won the fight for a contract that protects and improves working standards at TPM. After eight months of bargaining, we have won key concessions from management that include industry standard salary floors, a comp time policy that meets the needs of our unit, and annual increases that ensure members' pay will keep pace with inflation. And, most importantly, the contract would not have been possible without the solidarity and teamwork of the entire unit. We are proud of this contract and, of course, the writer Writers Guild of America East. Powerful union there, no doubt. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to link up with Desiree Hoffman, Assistant Legislative Director for the United Auto Workers. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. The AFL-CIO is a proud sponsor of America's Workforce Radio. United by efforts to raise wages, listeners to this show and workers all across America are beginning to turn a corner and drive the economic debate. The AFL-CIO is comprised of 12.5 million working people, but we stand with and fight for everyone who is working for a better life. For more information about our Raising Wages agenda, go to AFLCIO.org. Buildings, bridges, skyscrapers, and more. Structures that are the face of our cities and towns were built by members of the Ironworkers Union. That's why it's important that our workforce of over 130,000 ironworkers continues to be the safest and best trained in the field. With 154 training centers, we invest over $90 million annually in safety and training. We're growing the next generation of union ironworkers. There are so many reasons to put your trust in our ironworkers and their employers. Learn more about us at ironworkers.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be a WF Union podcast. Let's go to Washington, D.C. right now. And welcome back to the show, Desiree Hoffman. Desiree works as an assistant legislative director for the United Auto Workers, one of our many proud sponsors. UAW.org is her website. And as I indicated at the top of the show, this is Women's History Month, the month of March, Women's History Month. And Desiree has made history as far as being a woman labor leader. And that's what we're going to talk about on the show today. We've talked about legislative issues a long time, but this is going to be a little bit different. Desiree, welcome back to the show. And I I think the best way to start this is to go where you grew up. And I I see this was in uh, central Pennsylvania 
and you went from central Pennsylvania to the District of Col- that had to be a bit of a culture shock there. Let's start. Let's start right there. Can you take us back to that time, Desiree? Oh yeah, it is definitely. It sticks with me every single day, and it's why I'm a lobbyist today. So I grew up in a very blue-collar town in central Pennsylvania. My grandparents worked in a textile factory their entire life. My grandfather is like so many other grandfathers. He's no longer with us, but he pinched pennies. Um, He cut out coupons, and he would always tell me where to find the cheapest gas station um, when I came home. And uh, I was raised by a single mom. And, you know, we went through some tough times and I'm one of those kids that was a direct beneficiary of a lot of the programs that I advocate for. Now I went through the Head Start program. I was on Medicaid in order to get health insurance and my glasses um, that I so desperately needed. Um, I went through workforce programs that were geared towards, I'm putting it in air quotes, at risk kids. Um, and so I am a direct uh, beneficiary of all these programs that are provide a stepping stone to a lot of uh, low-income and moderate-income families. I didn't know that I was going to end up in D.C. lobbying. What I did know, though, is I kept saying to my family and my friends, how can I improve the lives of women, children, and low-income communities? I kept saying that as I was growing up. And my mom told me I needed to get an education. And that's the way that I would first start by making the world a better place. And then going to Washington, D.C. and changing the laws, I had no idea that I would actually end up doing it. I just had a lot of zest, a lot of desire, and I put in a lot of hard work um, to get to where I am. Now, you talk about education. Can we pick up uh, that part there? Where, Where did you go to school to get that education? Sure. I went to Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where I earned my bachelor's degree in international studies. Um, And then after I received my bachelor's degree, I went to George Washington University and received my master's degree in public policy. Okay, so that's and at that time you stayed in D.C. to uh, become a lobbyist then? I did. So one of the I think one of the most helpful things for me was during my graduate studies, I needed to do a practicum or an internship. And so my first practicum or internship was at the Service Employees International Union. They happened to have a position open in the government affairs department. And I worked directly with this lobbyist. Um, I was so intimidated by her because she was so smart and so savvy. And at the the time we, we were working on the Employee Free Choice Act. And she would just like be so sharp and be willing to put her neck out there in rooms and be really vocal and strong in her opinions. And I just really admired her and I wanted to be exactly like her. Um, And so she was a big role model for me. So how long were you with the service employees then after that? Yeah, after I I did my internship, um, it took a while, but eventually they asked me to come back for an interview for a lobbyist position And I ended up working at SEIU for about seven years. And I, one of the biggest achievements that I had at SEIU was the passage of the Affordable Care Act. So I Mm -hmm. worked on that day in and day out, um, working on what the bill would look like before it became law and making sure that it improved the lives of union members 
and working families, making sure that, you know, children were a part of it, that they could stay on their parents, you know, health care until the age of 26, making sure pre-existing conditions um, weren't, that people weren't unfairly charged um, higher rates because they were female, um, you know, just making sure that the laws treated folks fairly. And so that was a huge deal. I would say the other wonderful experience at SEIU is that I was able to work directly with rank and file union members yeah. and really um, learned how to, you know, mobilize them and really empower them to go on Capitol Hill and talk about all the issues um, that affected them. And so that I took that into all of my jobs since then and really have a two-way conversation, not just, you know, me, Desiree, the lobbyist trying to get their stories or teach them. It was, they're teaching me, they're sharing with me what their hopes and their dreams are, what they think are effective talking points on Capitol Hill. So that was a really good learning experience for me. Oh, I bet it was. That had to be almost a baptism by fire because I remember those. Yeah. I remember those days. Uh, do you remember the death panels that uh, wasn't that part of the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, why, yes, why don't you tell yeah. our listeners? I'm sure a lot of people forgot about that. I barely remember it. I tried to put it behind me because there were just so many more important issues that we had to talk about at the time. You know, um, you know, they if I'm recalling what they were saying, it was that it would create the legislation would create these death panels of bureaucrats. Uh-huh. who would try to triage or decide whether Americans, um, such as elderly parents or children with, um, you know, Down syndrome or other issues were worthy of medical care. Um, it was just a big myth that they were trying to drag down the bill with. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was government-regulated health care. And the crazy thing about this, uh, Desiree, this was a Republican program. Well, wasn't this uh, this very similar to what Mitt Romney proposed mm-hmm. in the state of Massachusetts? Right? Massachusetts, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So we were trying to get as close as to universal coverage as possible, um, but it, it definitely faced a lot of, of barriers. You know, the insurance companies were up in arms because for the first time ever, they wouldn't be allowed to charge excessive rates just because you had a pre-existing condition, which could be a chronic illness. Or if you're a woman, it could be that you had a cesarean section um, or you experienced domestic violence. These were things that were viewed as pre-existing conditions um, and insurers could charge more or rescind coverage. So I have to ask you during that time, what got you through that time? I mean, that had to be brutal. Uh, here you are. You uh, you wanted to change the world better, make a better world for workers, and then you get bombarded by this craziness in Washington. Very similar to uh, what happened during the pandemic with the, with the anti-vaxxers and all that. I, I think there's a very, very much of a similarity there. But what got you through it? What kept you going during that time? Oh, that's a really good question. No one's asked me that before. Um, we had a war room at SEIU where we were firing on all cylinders day in and day out. So we had a team of lobbyists, it was several lobbyists, and we would be on, you know, on point all the time to go to this war room and provide updates every single day. We'd work with our field operation to coordinate on members of Congress who we needed to touch. So if we saw a member of Congress who was not going to be voting the right way, we got our field operation on them and we coordinated. Um, And then we were, of course, participating in tons of hearings. 
We worked with, um, you know, on Capitol Hill to make sure we had the strongest provisions in the bill. I have to tell you, I was really run out, run down. I, I probably didn't take care of myself very well. And I think that happens to a lot of lobbyists, because especially women. At the time, I didn't have any kids. I was a single woman in D.C. Um, so that helps probably, <laughs> given that I could divert all my energy into work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, I honestly, at that time, I don't remember taking care of myself very well. But I think that was that's probably a common theme for many people who are trying to make the world a better place. I'm not saying that it's good, but it is definitely one of the things that happens to us as lobbyists and as women, especially. Now, now let me ask you, uh, I'm sure there are a lot of, well, maybe not, um, but a number of female lobbyists, but probably very few when it came to organized labor. Do you do you recall that time? Yeah, there was there were very few women. I mean, there's been some improvements. I can't remember how many there were at the time, but it was common for me to enter a room and there might be one or two other women. Um, it's improved a lot. I can't say it's improved to the point where I can say it's all been fixed because it hasn't. I still enter a lot of rooms and depending on the topic, I might be the only woman labor lobbyist in the room. So what I, I've learned to do is just, <laughs> I've learned to just do what I did when I was younger, have a voice, like ask questions. Um, you know, I'm respectful of, of my colleagues, whether they're male or female. So learn, I, I do the etiquette stuff that not everyone does. Like I raise my hand. But if, if I feel really strongly about something and I'm noticing people are getting heated up, I will interject and I will have to probably speak a little bit louder. So yeah. I think you just need to really gauge how people are communicating and sense the uh, mood in the room. So a lot of it is also intuition and just really figuring out the, your right strategy depending on the day. Desiree, I have the impression that you're almost too disciplined for the politics of today because you know how nasty politics have become. I mean, it's name calling uh, during the during the vote with Kevin McCarthy. Almost a fight broke out. That's got to be upsetting to you, especially you're, you're trying to do the right thing. But you see this nonsense, especially on the House floor. How did how do you react to that kind of stuff? Well, that's a good question, too. I mean, I think being that um, I've been around for so long, I've been lobbying for over 15 or 17 years now, I've learned to let things play out on them on their own in some situations. So when I was on Capitol Hill that day watching what was happening with McCarthy, I had never seen anything like that before. And I, I don't think anyone has had in 100 years. Um, and so, you know, you just let people have their conversation because even though it's tough to watch and it's preventing like committees from being formed and leadership from being voted on, it's a healthy conversation because I know the Republican party, like a lot of Republicans in the Republican party don't feel like they fit in. You know, there's equity issues around being female, being a person of color. Um, you know, I met heard them talking about not, supporting the Reagan belief system. Like they're really grappling with who they are as a party. And I think the same thing happens within the democratic party as well. Like there's some progressives who really want the party to go further left. And then there's some in the middle from states like Pennsylvania where I'm from. They're like, Hey, you know, we actually agree with some moderate Republicans on these issues. Um, and so for me, it's just a healthy debate, but don't get me wrong. There are moments where I'm like, 
what the hell is going on? Come on, people. (laughs) I don't blame you. Desiree Hoffman joining us on our live line today. This is a special uh, edition of America's Workforce. March is Women's History Month, and we're kind of picking the brains of various women labor leaders, and Desiree fits that category. Finding your way to the UAW. We'll talk about that next. Back in a few minutes, you're listening to America's Workforce. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The the United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the US, US, Canada, Canada, and and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers. Standing strong and fighting for what's right. The United Auto Workers are one of the largest and most diverse unions in North America, with members in virtually every sector of the economy. Learn more about this proud sponsor of our program at UAW.org. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SPS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on our least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. When you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. Let's go back to our live line and rejoin Desiree Hoffman, Assistant Legislative Director for the United Auto Workers, UAW.org. We're talking about Desiree's journey to the UAW. She's been in that position for the last five years, uh, became a lobbyist with the Service Employees International Union right out of uh, out of college. So your, your path to the uh, UAW, when you joined the UAW, uh, was that something that you were shooting for? Was that your goal here? Uh, take, me, take me to that time, Desiree. So after SEIU, I left and I did some other jobs. One of them was working with the mayor's office in Washington, D.C., working in our federal affairs office. But then I realized, I was like, I miss labor. I need to go back. So I, I stayed in contact with my labor colleagues through the years. And a position opened up at the UAW, and I, I knew pretty much right away that I wanted to work there. Um, I was ready to start a new chapter. I had worked on so many different issue areas. I mean, I think one of the strengths, I know one of the strengths I bring to the job is that 
Um, being a generalist in D.C. is really good. So if you've worked on like appropriations and tax issues and labor and health care, you can really sell yourself pretty well. And so I had that background. And that's what this job required is someone who was able to take on those kinds of a big portfolio and take on any new emerging issues. Because as you mentioned, like you can't anticipate everything like COVID. Who anticipated a pa- national pandemic or an international pandemic? No one. Right. So you have to be able to strategize quickly, figure out your game plan, figure out your agenda on Capitol Hill and with the administration and move it quickly. So I was really excited um, to be able to work with the UAW and I still am every day. It's a lot of work, but it's it's good work that um, we're doing. Is it much different than when you were with the service employees, International Union? Yeah, you know, it is and it isn't. So there's just um, core elements of my job that always remain the same. So looking at legislation and being able to evaluate the you know strengths of a bill and the areas that you think need to be improved that's a core part of the job. Writing is a core part of the job. Relationship building, whether it's on Capitol Hill or with coalitions or allies that work on common bills. Um, but there's differences. So the, the membership at SEIU was different than the membership uh, is different than the membership at the UAW. SEIU is more service sector workers, janitors, childcare workers. You know, UAW is a very diverse union, similar to SEIU, but, you know, primarily auto manufacturing, more, you know, private sector union versus um, SEIU, which is public sector, right? So mm-hmm. there are are some key differences, but the lobbying work and the skill sets that I acquired over the years definitely are put to great use. That's the similarity. Um, and I should have mentioned, too, a lot of folks who end up lobbying are lawyers. I am not a lawyer, I just play one on TV. <laughs> no, I um, I just learned to work on, you know, I've learned, I guess I'm, a, I'm just a team player, right? So I know yeah. my strength and I'll work with our legal team and say, hey, can you look at this? I'm just not getting it. Or are you getting the same read here? But after a lot of years of doing this work, you just kind of learn it, you know, learn how to do a good job. Um, and you just learn to ask for help too. And if you don't, well, you're probably not going to go very far. I'm so glad you told me you're not a lawyer. I really am because there, there are, are way too many. There. Yeah, way yeah. too many in Washington. I mean, don't even get me started on the cost of education. I'm still paying that. So a lot of the issues I actually work on are things that also not just impact UAW membership, but impact me, like the student loan uh-huh. forgiveness program that President Biden has is trying to push through but stuck in the courts. I would benefit from student loan forgiveness because I took out a – a lot of loans as a low-income kid. Um, I did get a lot of scholarships and grants, but it didn't cover it all. So, oh, I hear you. You know, it, it's a I fight. have four daughters, and one of them decided to go into uh, social work. She's doing a great job, but she required a master's degree, and she's got about ninety thousand dollars in student loans. But she, I got her in the loan forgiveness program, but she still has a way to go, hopefully. And I, I know there were some problems with that program, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that it's still around for the next couple of years so she can get a lot of that forgiven. We'll see what happens. But uh, I want to get back to uh, 
to the fact that uh, you have been a lobbyist for quite some time now. I mean, my gosh, over uh, 20 years when you take a look at uh, at all this with service employees and then uh, obviously with the UAW. But what would be your advice? You, you've got you've got a lot of uh, background in this field right now. And we have a pretty broad audience here, especially with the podcasting on six platforms. Now, what advice would you give to somebody that's considering, especially a female, that's considering going into this? Well, I would say, you know, study hard, work hard. Um, I think there's different career paths or paths to get to be a lobbyist. So if you're not in D.C., which I think most of your listeners are not, um, you know, there's opportunities to work at the state level. So, you know, work on this, you know, figure out key issues that you might want to work on, um, work for organizations that are working on them, and m- perhaps figure out a way that you could work um, on state level politics and be a state level lobbyist. If you want to aspire to move to Washington, D.C., I'd highly encourage, if you can, to work on Capitol Hill. A lot of staffers work on the Hill for a number of years, and they are swooped up by um, different companies and organizations to lobby on behalf of their issues once they're ready. Um, and so that's another sh- sure way to, to leap into lobbying. Um, I think making sure you know what you really are passionate about. Um, and, and unfortunately, I think one of the prerequisites of this job is that you pursue higher education, um, which I don't always think is fair. Um, But um, I think that there are some rank-and-file union uh, workers who work their way up and become a lobbyist, but that is few and far in between, to be quite frank. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that we have a lot of work to do to make sure we're representing workers and issues and, and make sure that women and other folks are able to enter these careers because we're only going to make policy effective if we have the right voices and people in the room. So obviously some passion, education, and uh, of course, knowing your material if you want to be a lobbyist. One more, uh, one more to add to that. Would you say a thick skin is required in this profession? Very much so. Um, it's easy to get caught up in your feelings or your emotions um, or that you put in so much work into something um, and it's not going in the right direction, either it's stalled in Congress or you're not getting along with an ally. The ally doesn't agree with where you're going and they have, they could take down a bill or something that you work really hard on. And that could really prevent you from moving forward. I think it's always good to reflect, say what you need to say, but you have to keep moving on because there's always another day to, li- to yeah. live another fight. And if you don't, like, it could easily catch up with your your mental health, how, your, how effective you are on the job, and how you're perceived by others. And this city is all about relationships, and so people can read that. Yep. All right, Desiree, we got a couple of minutes left. I want to pick your brain okay. a little bit when it comes to uh, women leaders, and there have been many in the course of the history of organized labor. And uh, I often reference Liz Shuler. That first of all, that had to be an exciting moment for you to have Liz Shuler, the first female to head the AFL-CIO. What uh, What was your take on that when that happened? 
Yeah. So, you know, Rich Trumka, the previous president of the AFL-CIO, actually had an opportunity to get to know pretty well. I was sent to Pennsylvania um, when I actually had worked with the AFL-CIO a while back. And I worked with a great guy. His name is Paul Lemon. He was a political director in Pennsylvania, a mine worker. And him and Rich Trumka worked closely with each other. And he was great. You know, he was phenomenal. But the one thing I appreciate about Rich and other union leaders is that they make sure they have someone to fill their shoes if something goes wrong. And Liz Schuler is an amazing leader. She is very collaborative. She gets a lot of insights and perspectives from the unions. She knows how to lead a meeting. So that's not what the world gets to see, but I get to see it in action every day. Well, I shouldn't say every day. I get a chance to see it a lot. And when I do, it's just an impressive thing to see someone making sure that people have an opportunity to speak. And, you know, she's a great leader and someone that I, I really look up to. Anybody from years past that um, that you really, really got involved with as far as studying their history and their impact when it comes to uh, women labor leaders? Well, I'm still, you know, one thing I would be remiss if I didn't mention is there's been a lot of great UAW women leaders over the years, and I'm still learning their history. I'm a history buff, and I love learning. I'm a lifelong learner, and that has served me well in my role also. Um, there was a, a woman with the UAW. Her name was Olga Marie Mater. She was the first woman to serve on the UAW International Executive Board. So she's left a really great legacy um, with the UAW. And, there, you know, there was a lot of other women who were the first of the UAW women's departments or bureaus, like Millie Jeffrey and Mae Wolf and Dottie Jones. And so I really, you know, my hat goes off to those women who came at different periods of time um, to make sure that, you know, there was a strong women's agenda that was being discussed, but also that they were just touting the larger UAW agenda as well. So um, I also, VP Estrada, well, she's no longer vice president of the UAW, but she's gone over to the AFL-CIO. She's an amazing leader, and she's done so much for the UAW, and now in her new role, she's going to be working with uh, AFL-CIO-affiliated unions and really zeroing in on the organizing agenda and working with directly with President Schuler on that you know, looking at the South and what's happening there and right to work states and how, you know, companies are moving their, shifting their work and how a lot of the, the anti-union activities that are happening across the country when workers try to form unions. So she is someone that I really look up to as well. So with that being said, would you, would you say that labor has a woman's agenda today? Is that the case? You know, that's a, that's a really great question. Often in my role, um, when I work with the UAW Women's Department, we say all issues are women's issues. So whether it's Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which strengthens and protects workers' right to form a union, or if it's trade, trade is a labor's issue because, you know, that, that trade is a women's issue because that affects jobs. Um, that affects, you know, communities at large. Um, so, you know... I don't think that the, sometimes the labor movement puts it that way, but they should um, because it, it has the tendency to exclude women when you're sitting in rooms and you say, oh, you just care about child care or paid leave or pay equity. 
That is not the case. And I think it's very um, limiting when you just tell women that this is just your lane. Um, So I, I thoroughly believe that all women, all issues are women's issues. You got to get out of that lane. <laughs> you really right. do. You really do. Desiree Hoffman joining us in our live line today. Kind of a special edition of America's Workforce. Uh, during the month of March, we're focusing on Women's History Month and what women have done in the course of organized labor. And Desiree certainly making a difference for the UAW as Assistant Legislative Director. You stay safe, stay in touch, and stay strong. Thank you for so much for joining us today on America's Workforce. Okay, Desiree? Happy Women's History Month. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a quick break right now. When we come back, we're going to go to Seattle, Washington, and join Cindy Payne with Washington Women in Trades. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. Hi, this is Liz Schuler, president of the AFL-CIO, and I am a huge fan of Flash and America's Workforce Radio and Podcast. The United Steelworkers of America represent over 70,000 workers in the state of Ohio. Steelworker members enjoy the benefits of some of the best contracts of any workers in the world. Many of your friends, neighbors, and relatives are members of one of the most effective Democratic unions in our country. With the pressures unorganized workers are under in today's economy, you need to join them. So call the Steelworkers Organizing Office at 216-292-5683 or toll-free at 1-800-443-3752. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at voidwaterson.com. You're listening to America's Workforce, and this upcoming segment is brought to you by the United Labor Agency. They connect people with employment, 216-666-2185. You can find them online at ulagency.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. Now... Back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to Seattle, Washington right now. And joining us on our live line is Cindy Payne. Cindy is a project manager for an organization called Washington Women in Trades. Website is wawomenintrades.com. Now, March is Women's History Month. We're calling attention to all women that have made history, and there's so many of them, and they're all in different roles. We do a lot with the trades, and there's a push by the North American building trades to get more diverse, more females, more African Americans, people of color. It doesn't matter. We want to get them in there because it is, simply put, the pathway to the middle class. Cindy Payne, Welcome to America's Workforce, and uh, as project manager, maybe why don't you just give us an overview 
of this organization, Washington Women in Trades. Go ahead. Well, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to talk with you today. And Women in Trades has been around since 1978. And they were formed because of women who had gotten CETA grants. I don't know if you remember those. Um, and suddenly had jobs in construction and realized that it was tough out there. Uh-huh. And they were the only ones. And the organization was originally created as a support organization. But, as, you know, you can only sit around and have potlucks for so long. And they decided they wanted to be more active and created a job fair. And how long have you been involved in them? I think it's about 15 years, maybe 18. I'm not sure. Um, I started really just as a PR person, you know, somebody called me and said, do you want to do PR for this organization? And I said, "Mm, I don't know, maybe, sure. (laughs) And all of a sudden I was, you know, I, I went to the fair and I was very welcomed by the organization and the people involved. And, you know, I had a skill set that was a really great fit and I knew that I could make it work better for them, especially given my experience with events, because I have a long history of work in events and the music business and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, my logistics brain and my graphics brain and all those things kind of came together with this group. And I'm, I have had a really nice run for some really great people. So why don't you explain as project manager, what are you doing? Obviously, everything today is about messaging. It's important you get the, the right message out there. And obviously, more and more women are getting involved in the trades. I mean, that, that is a fact. We need more women to get involved in the trades. We've done a lot with uh, Trades Women Build Nations. I know they had a wonderful uh, conference in Las Vegas uh, last year, which we really highlighted on the show. Uh, things like that are very, very important. Can you be specific on um, on what you actually do there? What, what do you do in the community? And, and do you just cover the Seattle area then or all of Washington State? All of the above. Um, yes, we cover mostly the Seattle area. I'd say, you know, the Puget Sound area. Um, so it's from across the water in on the west side in Bremerton and you know, south to Olympia, we have been working on creating chapters on the east side of Washington, which is still in the infancy stage. But I think that those things will come as more women get involved. You know, our numbers are really pretty low still, Um, even though, you know, we'd like to think they were better. They're not. It's really a tough place. It's really hard to get those gigs. And the apprenticeship programs are long, and they're a great deal, but because of the culture, women aren't always able to stay. It's really Mm -hmm. about retention. People get the job, but then they don't keep it for, you know, whatever reason. They need child care. They are harassed. It's, you know, it's, it's a tough place. We do two events a year. One is our trade fair, which is a job fair, 
and the other is a dinner. And the job fair is the one that's the most important for our mission. And it is done at Seattle Center, which is downtown Seattle, um, was originally the World Fair site in the early 60s. Um, and we feature over a hundred exhibitors, both indoor and outdoor, with very, very, very um, hands-on experiences. For instance, the city light, our you know our public utility electric utility brings a climbing pole and kids get to climb the pole. Um, the iron workers bring a grid that is six feet off the ground and people walk the grid. Um, it's focused mostly on an audience of high school kids and middle school kids, so we don't see the immediate results. You know, you don't go to the fair and say. Oh my gosh! I got a job as a, a line worker today. Mm -hmm. What we do do is inspire a middle school kid who's going to remember that experience. And I can't tell you how many phone calls I've gotten that come from people saying, "You know, I was at your job fair, and it's because of you um, at a fair ten years ago that I decided to be a carpenter." That's interesting. And did did the work to find out about an apprenticeship program, did the work to um, get the training, and, you know, they're now building the nation. Yeah, yeah. So so your results, they don't come right away. It, it takes some time. No. No, I wish I wish we could say, you know, we we have immediate results. We know exactly how, how well we're doing. Uh -huh. um, but we don't. We just have to have faith that, you know, we've created the very best event we can and inspired as many kids as we have or can. Yeah. You, you brought up a good point about retention, and I hear that a whole lot from the trades because you, you think of the hours. I mean, you're in a trade. you got to be ready to go between 6 and 6.30 in the morning, and then you don't come home till later in the day to four o'clock and then there's overtime there's weekends how the heck do you handle kids in a situation like that are you in women washington women in trades are you addressing that issue when you go out in the community i wish we were more it's something that our members talk about a lot but we haven't really um focused on it um and i'm not sure how i mean i think it does come from the you know, the union level right? more than it would for us because we're, we're just this organization that's, that creates events for people to come. We're, as, as one of our co-chairs says, we're the conduit. We bring people together so that they can know who to talk to and who, can, who to connect with. I can't tell you how many phone calls I get in a week from somebody saying in one, in fact, one yesterday, I want to be an electrician. In fact, I want to be a line worker. Do I have to have a driver's license? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking, well, probably you do, but there's probably ways, you know, call the union. I don't know yeah. the answer to that, but I know who to 
send that person to. The other thing that we, you know, do in a very organic way is help people find mentors. And that's really important too. And I, I personally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't speak for the group on this because I don't think they all agree with me. I think that mentoring is a really organic process. I don't think you just go to a room and say, oh, I'm going to speed dial or speed date a mentor today, and you get one. I think it takes more um, just mushy connection. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's just my opinion. I, I can't expand on it particularly. I just believe that – and that's why mentoring programs are tough. Yeah. We don't, we always talk about creating a mentoring program, but, you know, how do you manage that and make sure that the apprentice and the mentor is always connecting because it's all a personal thing, you know? Well, you are making a difference. I mean, you've been at it since uh, the late 70s. Not you, but Washington Women in Trades has been. And their whole mission is we educate, promote, and celebrate. We facilitate access for women in the skilled trades. Those of you listening, do check out the website. It's wawomenintrades.com, wawomenintrades.com. There's uh, there's so much more to talk about this issue because, as I indicated, there is a push to get more females, people of color, involved in the trades because there's good money. It's not easy. There's a lot of bumps in the road. And, you know, you mentioned the unions. I know, for one, we record this show Monday through Friday at Ironworkers Local 17. And uh, Ironworkers nationally have done a great job on that issue because they are the first union that went forward and are giving those that get pregnant 12 weeks of maternity leave. Paid. Paid maternity leave. Oh, good for leave. them. So, yeah. So... You know, with that being and I know other unions are looking at that, you know, with with progress like that, the fact that they, you know, stepped in the right direction there, made a huge step in the right direction. Others will follow. But you just got to be persistent and you got to be consistent in your messaging. And obviously, that's what you're doing with Washington Women in Trade. Cindy Payne, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, the website, wawomenintrades.com. Cindy Payne serves as the project manager. You take care and please stay in touch with us, okay? That was really fun. Thank you so much. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce tomorrow. Kate Schindel of Actors Equity and labor lawyer Joyce Goldstein. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.